0: hello and welcome to the logistics podcast i'm your host bonnie cliff thanks for joining us let's get started following on from our last episode about apparel today we have three knowledgeable guests who will discuss the logistics challenges faced by retailers in today's rapidly changing world and will offer helpful tips on how to grow your business resiliently Kim Baudry from Domatic returns for a second episode, joined this time by industry experts Claire Bottle of the United Kingdom Warehousing Association, or UKWA, and Dave Berridge, Secretary of the Automated Material Handling Systems Association, or AMSA. I'll let them introduce themselves now.
1: Hello everyone, Uh, Kim Baudry. I'm a Global Market Development Director at Dymatic, I've been uh, in the industry since 1998 with Dymatic for 12 plus years now. Um, I oversee our vertical market team, so uh, all of the industries that we focus on for our customers work and and think about every day. I particularly handle general merchandise and apparel,
2: in addition to managing the team. I'm Dave Burridge. I'm a man of many hats, but I think today I'm wearing the AMSA hat. So I'm the um, secretary of AMSA, which is the Automated Material Handling Systems Association. Uh, I've been in the industry for 35 years, I think, something like that. I used to be solutions director for one of the big integrators before I set up my own business and started running, running AMSA. Uh, I'm also president of the British Materials Handling Federation, which is a bit of an umbrella organisation for uh, several other trade bodies um, in the UK that report in through to um, FEM. Um, and I'll also do other things in terms of BSI work and bits and pieces as well.
3: So I'm Claire Bottle. I've worked in logistics uh, since 1994, predominantly in operational logistics until the last couple of years where I've become chief executive of the UK Warehousing Association. Uh, so like AMPs, we're a trade body. Um, we primarily represent a thousand member companies who are mostly uh, operators of warehousing in the UK and Ireland uh, and we do Four things. So we talk about warehousing, which includes podcasts like this, but also talking to the government and the media about the importance of warehousing. Uh, We raise standards in the industry. So for example, next year, we'll be launching the first ever recognised qualification for a warehouse manager. We build community, which we partly do online and also face to face. So for example, yesterday, we were holding uh, our annual meeting in Belfast to get people together to encourage networking. Uh, And then the fourth part of our mission is very all you know huge um, and reactive and it is we just help our members so whatever our members need uh, we're always there to help so that's UKWA.
0: The first topic that came up amongst our guests was sustainability which has seen an increased focus in recent years across all industries. I asked the panel what fueled this shift in customer expectations.
1: I'll start with the America's viewpoint because I think we might be a little bit different than other countries where there might be some Uh, regulations that are actually requiring our customers to follow sustainable practices. The U.S. and Canada have yet to do things like that. But I think from our perspective, especially in particular industries like apparel, you have consumers that are very conscientious about making the younger generations, I will say, by the way, millennials, Gen Z, where they think about where they're going to buy products from and who they're gonna buy products from and how they handle treating their people, how they handle making their products. You know, Are they basically things that we throw in a landfill quickly? So right now on, on this side of the pond, I guess, as you would say, we're seeing a lot of those traces driven by the consumer You know, making a, a decision. But I do think there are increasing regulations going on in other places that are probably driving that.
3: I agree with what you've said. But I do think when we talk about consumers, this sort of approach tends to come more from the privileged consumer. So consumers who are well educated, consumers who can afford to follow through on their values. And so it's not always the youngest people that are able to do that. Sometimes Old people like me like to try and use our consumer power. But I do think when we talk about customers, it's also interesting to talk about business customers. So for a third party logistics operator, they're obviously interested in the end consumer and there is definitely some power to be had there. But there's also the immediate client that they might be working for. So if you're running a warehouse, third party warehouse sometimes has half a dozen different clients in there. And the expectations of those clients might be different and that can make it difficult as a warehouse operator, to know where to pitch your sustainability activities, because some clients want to pay for it and are prepared to do that. And that's what they're really after. And others would like it if it's free, but they're not really prepared to accept any disruption or any additional cost.
2: I think we also need to look at clients' ESG policies and whether they're they're looking for a particular level of sustainability or particular level of efficiency. When I mean, there are moves in sort of at a European level around the eco design regulations, I can see in much the same way that when you buy a washing machine or a fridge now, you, you get an energy rating for it. I think suppliers for materials handling equipment like Domatic and other integrators will have to sort of put an energy rating on their equipment. And then, when as part of the tender documentation, customers are going to be looking to say we only want to have A rated equipment, we only want A or A plus rated equipment, um, and that will. I think, drive a lot more awareness and also mean that certain suppliers perhaps aren't even in the game. They wouldn't be considered if they had a a B or a C rated efficiency piece of equipment. That might drive not just supplier selection, but also technologies. And some of the older technologies are perhaps less efficient than more modern technologies. So that might change things in the marketplace as well.
1: Our parent company, Keon and Domatic, are very involved in making sure that we're answering the questions with regards to our equipment and also our supply chain when it comes to sustainability. So 100% agree with that. We we hold um, the responsibility, you know, to support our customers in that endeavor.
2: I mean, it's interesting in terms of sort of, if you look at sort of FTSE companies and commitments to net zero and so on, I think uh, the vast majority of the FTSE 100, I think it's like 60% have committed to, to a net zero by 2030. And that's all gonna be driven by sort of making the right choices in terms of technology in, in, in warehousing.
3: Absolutely. And I think when we talk to our members, we're definitely seeing that it's their clients that are the primary motivator in, in making them want to do that. You know, that because, like I said before, the clients may have different expectations, but all of them want to see ESG credentials. I think there are perhaps some other stakeholders that have a role to play. So one of those would be. Potential employees and current employees. I know Kim mentioned before about younger people, and in particular, when we're trying to diversify our workforces, it's really important to people entering into an environment like a warehouse to feel that they're working for a responsible employer. Uh, And one of the things that they might be looking for is to see a company that operates sustainably. So, in order to build up that employer brand and to win in the war for talent, that might be another influential factor. Um, Although, as I say, I think. Probably the demands of client comes at the top of the list. But employer brands should be in there too as well, and perhaps that's going to grow.
0: As Claire mentioned, sustainability is a huge priority for young people, both as consumers and as workers. So to attract young people to your business, you need a robust ESG strategy. I asked the panel where the easiest wins here lie.
3: Well, I would say that there's a couple of obvious things for within the four walls of a warehouse. I'm going to just park for a minute the idea of a temperature controlled warehouse, because that's like got some other stuff going on. But if we just talk about an an ordinary ambient warehouse, they always say that lighting is is where you, you use a lot of electricity and it creates a big carbon footprint. And so, you know, making sure you've got the right kind of lighting and that it's well controlled is part of how you would improve the ESG credentials. But I think there's another factor which probably... A bigger picture one um, and it's not about within the four walls. It's also really important to make sure that your warehouse starts off in the correct location. So issues like relationships with local authorities uh, and the provision of planning permission can um, ultimately end up with warehouses being built in sub-optimal locations and that drives in additional transport, which is a factor which can definitely increase the carbon footprint of supply chains overall. So building in the right place, I would say, is probably the primary thing. But then once you've got a warehouse building, lighting comes top of that list. We at the UKWA have also done a lot of work on uh, opportunities for installing solar panels on warehouse rooftops. Uh, and then, of course, I think we're going to talk a bit about automation. There's an interesting thing around location
1: that is happening, and actually Domatic just funded a fairly large study on this that we'll have results on pretty soon. But we are seeing a movement of many retailers moving their operations and their inventory closer to consumers to hit consumer expectations. But in doing so, they have to think about transportation costs, emissions, and all of that. They're also as you get closer to a consumer to make sure that you're meeting delivery requirements, you're going to be sh- basically shrinking the size of your building because the, the land and the, the real estate will be more expensive as you get closer to an urban area or suburban area. But if you think about shrinking the size of a building and also getting it in the right place, the size of the building can save overall energy consumption, right? So if you can use vertical space as opposed to horizontal space, and we're seeing you know globally companies in certain metropolitan areas like Sydney Australia and Los Angeles California building you know five level or five story distribution centers which you would have thought would never happen but that is a way to use vertical space and also reduce your carbon footprint and then if you are conscientious of how you pack orders so that you're using the cube of a truck that is delivering orders to the best of your ability that also makes a huge impact on carbon footprint. So operations inside the distribution center to help make sure that you can use a tote or a box to fill it up rather than sticking a small item like a phone in size of an 18 by 18 box. You want to use that box or tote efficiently so that when you're packing a truck, um, obviously you're reducing the packaging cost and amount of packaging you're using, but you're also helping reduce the carbon footprint of trucks on the road. So those are the things that. I think automation providers can support and help
3: with. And on packaging, uh, there's a bit of a trade-off, isn't there? Because on the one hand, you're trying to make sure that you don't have a lot of fresh air being inside the packaging for the exact reason you've just described, Kim. But also you need the packaging to be high enough quality so that you don't get product damage. Because if products are damaged, that ends up as waste. And that's got a bad carbon footprint as well.
2: I mean, just outside of the warehouse as well, things like route planning and making sure you've got the, 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 the most efficient route can give you bigger benefits perhaps than having a slightly more fuel efficient vehicle. So it's a, I think technology and AI have got a lot to offer in terms of doing things smarter rather than just trying to purely cut down in terms of miles and stuff.
0: So you've now got the relevant tools in place to reduce your business's carbon footprint. But when was the last time you reviewed your recruitment process? Is it fit for purpose? Does it showcase the benefits of working for you? And what makes your company stand out? I asked the panel how they recommend increasing employee engagement, well-being and retention.
1: I think inside of a warehouse specifically, there's a lot that can be done to help employees. So a lot of the automation that is on the market today is really designed to be ergonomic. So people are not lifting heavy cases, right? So you have automation, you have robots um, that can help do that kind of work now. You know, we used to walk thousands of miles probably a day in a distribution center to pick for an order. And now, rather than doing that, you can have items brought to a person in a goods-to-person manner. And at that goods-to-person workstation, everybody works very hard to make sure that items are at the right level, that people aren't bending, they're not twisting, they're not reaching too much. So there's a lot of stuff that I think that, you know, when automation started really changing the way things were done inside of a warehouse, it was driven to make things more productive, but also... Absolutely, to make things more ergonomic for the workers because, again, we have laws about that, and we have you, you will just burn out your workforce. So, uh, I think that's a big thing that automation can do to support the labor force and attracting labor and keeping labor you know, taking care of them physically and emotionally.
2: Yeah, I think all of these warehouses are pulling labor from the same pool. So, if, yeah. if your operation is slightly less attractive than the one next door, people will vote with their feet. I mean there has been a a big growth in terms of robotics uh, and that's forecast to grow even further as well I think and that can create perhaps a more interesting environment and get rid of a lot of the mundane activity and make a perhaps a more satisfying environment for employees to work in.
3: Yeah I agree with what Dave said about there always has been some mundane work in warehouses and it sometimes gets rather unfairly maligned by politicians but I think what's really valuable there is that There are some people who've been failed by the education system who aren't necessarily coming into the workforce with a lot of qualifications. And in warehousing, we tend to have some entry level jobs which are suitable for people like that. I think what's really key is that people have to come into warehouses nowadays with digital literacy. They need to be comfortable engaging with a computer screen that gives them instructions about what to do. uh, And they need to be confident that they can respond if there's an error message. So that sort of digital literacy is probably a prerequisite. But beyond that, I think there are lots of really exciting examples of social mobility in the warehousing workforce. Uh, It tends to be a meritocracy. People who've got skills, whether they are digital skills, which enable them to get into inventory management or maybe uh, mechanical skills for fixing robots. Uh, or it could be leadership skills to become a supervisor or a warehouse manager. All sorts of those skills can be well-recognized in a warehousing environment, and people can make progress in their careers. So I do think warehousing is a fantastic place to work and not always recognized as being so by the general public.
1: Really good point, Claire, because if you think about one of the biggest needs we hear from our customers are people that are trained to service and maintain equipment now that are in distribution centers. And they're very much needed and people to operate. And also, if you think about the fact that we're starting to see order fulfillment taking place in some cases in stores, in grocery stores primarily, then you have a whole nother set of skills needed even in the store, right? So the same digital literacy that you're speaking of is needed if I'm doing a micro-fulfillment center in a grocery store. So um, I think there's all kinds of opportunity for people in this industry to find interesting And fulfilling jobs.
3: In my spare time, I'm the vice chair of Women in Logistics UK. And one of the things that we've identified is that uh, only about 1% of HGV drivers in the UK are women, and only about 2% of forklift truck drivers in the UK are women. And it feels as though there's some untapped potential there. So I'm really uh, excited about the Generation Logistics programme, which is part funded by government, trying to highlight and promote logistics careers to people that don't know our sector. I think mainly that programme is really aimed at young people, but I'm delighted to see that it's equally aimed at boys and girls. Uh, And I think, well, giving people an insight uh, into the sorts of career opportunities that are available has been a gap that was missing and which is being addressed by Generation Logistics. It's a great campaign.
0: There is an emerging section of the e-commerce market that presents a plethora of consumer goods at ultra-cheap prices. But, as the saying goes, if something seems too good to be true then it probably is. There are only so many money-saving practices that can be applied sustainably throughout the supply chain. If the price is mind-blowingly low, then someone somewhere is at risk of exploitation. I asked the panel their thoughts on the growing popularity of these ultra-cheap retailers.
1: It's hard to say because, I mean, I think it's definitely a step back. Those items that we buy are going to end up in a landfill fairly quickly. But again, you go to the economics of the discussion, which is not everybody can afford... A luxury item right so it's a tough call because you know they do provide you know i, I had a, a person that i know that was shopping for a wedding she wanted to go to a wedding she didn't have a lot of money to spend and you know she went to sheen and found a lovely dress for very little money so i think you know that there's a discussion around income and, and affordability and that they solve problems in those areas from a sustainability perspective, I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors because usually the things that, that are coming from there are not going to last very long.
3: I see what you're saying, Kim, and I, I do agree to a certain extent. But I would also say we live in a consumerist society, and whatever consumers demand, somebody's going to meet that demand. Within the logistics and supply chain sector, we're quite lucky in some ways because what tends to be more environmentally friendly will also tend to be cheaper as well. So from a logistics point of view, I think we can try to make those supply chains as efficient and as effective as possible. And that will automatically make them usually more sustainable as well. But it's when you think about the materials and the risk of poor workforce practices in the supply chain that I I think there are potential issues with these sorts of retailers. But the logistics and the supply chain that doesn't necessarily have to be a backward step from that perspective.
2: If we look at the benefits from a, an automation point of view, I think it depends which economy that work content takes place. So if you're if you're doing the manufacturing and the distribution in a, in a low cost economy, then you're not going to get the benefits of automation because there's there's little cost to sort of compete with. If we're bringing things over into to higher cost economies and then have distribution centers in those economies, then robotics and automation and so on make a lot more sense. So I think it depends where, in the, if you look at the total supply chain, where where that sits and what economy that sits in will then define what's sensible, where automation should take place, where where perhaps a, a more manual process is appropriate. It's not necessarily the quality is going to be bad. I mean things that are made manually by hand aren't always bad quality. But uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's back to the practices and and how things are made, perhaps uh, that start affecting these things.
0: Thank you to Kim, Claire and Dave for their contributions to this episode. We'll hear more from the whole panel next week when they will share their thoughts on the most exciting upcoming technological developments for the warehouse. If the prospect of automation has sparked your interest, I highly recommend reaching out to Zomatic. Connecting with them through the website can provide you with valuable insights into their cutting edge technology and help you determine if it aligns with your needs. Thank you for listening to the Logistics Podcast. Keep it moving.